This morning we will have two scripture readings. The first is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you'll please turn now to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in, in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable— If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. We're in Philippians chapter 4. The the, the first reading was just a little bit of backdrop. We're looking just at these uh, nine verses. How hard can they be? Rejoice always, never be anxious. All very straightforward. We'll be done in five minutes. Let's pray. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we need you to help us here. We need you, the God who is uh, beyond our understanding, to come and help us understand, but not that it's hard to understand, but work within us uh, a joy that is constant, uh, a peace in the midst of our anxieties. Would you be doing that, we pray, for the honor of your name and our great good. Amen. Now, all of us would have been asked the question, or have it put to us, what were you thinking? Now, sometimes it's put to us somewhat aggressively, what were you thinking? Uh, Sometimes a bit more bewildering, what were you thinking when you, whatever, put diesel in your petrol car? What were you thinking when you did that? What were you thinking when you sent that email? What were you thinking? Uh, And of course, the answer normally is, uh, I don't know, uh, not a lot. It happens all the time. It's in all sorts of things. We were away last week walking in Derbyshire. I was in charge of the map and directions. And we were a little off-piste, as it were, at one point. No problem, no problem. We need to be up there. I can see where we need to be. We just walk straight up here. But that's through a herd of cows. Yeah, it's fine. Now, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? It's fine. They'll just... 
don't be straight through. What are you thinking? No, it's fine. And then as you approach them and the cows just look at you and say, we ain't moving. We ain't moving no matter what noises you make. They sort of look at you. It's a bit, a bit embarrassing, humiliating when you feel a cow is looking at you saying, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, we, you know, I don't know, seemed like a good idea at the time. We've all had that question put to us. What are you thinking? Now, this letter of Philippians, Paul is greatly concerned throughout it with what they're thinking. And so we come to that again in chapter 4. And he'll say, look, I'm concerned with your thinking. Chapter 4, verse 2, you need to be of the same mind. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 8, whatever, you know, can you think upon these certain things? Actually, to live the Christian life right, you, you do need to think about it. Or a, a dominant theme, really, in this letter is you, you need to have the mindset of Christ. So here, where you've got chapter 4, verse 2, uh, I plead Judea and syndicate to be of the same mind. It's precisely the same term as we had in chapter 2, verse 2, that he wants the congregation to be like-minded. It's precisely the same word as in chapter 2, verse 5. You need to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. So throughout this letter, he's saying, you you need to have the mindset of Jesus. You need to think like Jesus. That is a concern for other people. Uh, That is uh, putting aside today luxury and ease because you know ahead of you is great joy. That's what we had. Again, uh, that that reading in in chapter 2, Jesus was willing to humble himself, even humble himself to death upon the cross because he knew in the future there was joy ahead of him. You need to think in those terms. But not everyone is. So we had last time in uh, chapter 3, verse 19, talking about some others who are troubling the church. Paul can say, chapter 3, verse 19, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So here's the contrast you, you get in the letter. Paul says, you, you, you know, this is the little table, if you like such things, they work for you. Have a mind like Jesus. That is, you're thinking about being a citizen of heaven, and you're concerned with serving others now. Don't be like some troubling the church who had a mind just set purely on earthly things, obsessed with the here and now, concerned with just themselves and self-preservation and, and self-aggrandizement. no. Don't have that mind. Have a mind like Christ. I've been saying it recurrently throughout the letter. uh, And that's what stands behind what we're looking at today. Now, Philippians, just if you've been away uh, or or just a way of reminder, it is an unusual letter in in the New Testament in that there's no great complaints. Paul is not correcting any mistakes, really. This is the best of the New Testament churches in many, many ways. And so his great appeal in this letter is keep going or stand firm. That really has been the the, the great push of this letter. So in the central section from chapter 1, verse 27, his concern was that they would stand firm, chapter 1, verse 27, in one spirit. And we sort of come to the end of that today. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, I'm going to conclude, therefore... My brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord and Eudeus indicate be of one mind together. So here's a church. It's a great church. 
It's a great church. You want to join the church of Philippi. It's brilliant. But they, but they are suffering persecution. Some are being imprisoned. Some are losing property. And he says, stand firm together. The rugby scrum. Be, be united side by side together. And do you know what it looks like? Sometimes you'll say chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, it's in the very mundane things. Do you know how you stand firm when, when, when life is going wrong, when persecution comes? You know, Paul's in prison for his life. He's about to die. What does it mean to stand firm? Do you know what it means to think the same sometimes? It means to just keep rejoicing. It means to not be anxious. That's what standing firm looks like. Well, that's how you go about it in these sort of ways. So these sort of staccato imperatives of of chapter 4, they come thick and fast. But this is what it looks like to stand firm, to keep going. I've put three down. As I say, they're very easy. Be united in one mind. Always rejoice. Never be anxious. And um, anyone need any help? Let's see how we get on with these three. The key, Paul will say, is, what are you thinking about? Think about the right things. Let's take them in turn. First then, verses 2 and 3. Here's the first way of standing firm. Be united in one mind. So he says, uh, can you imagine this scenario? Verse 2. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement. And the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now this would have been a little, a little frizzle of excitement in church that Sunday morning. Can you imagine? So um, these two obviously prominent women, they've, they've served side by side with Paul. Everyone knows who Judea and Syntyche are in the church. They're the, sort of, the two sort of families that probably plant, you know, key families involved in setting up the church. Everyone knows them, pillars of the church. Everyone sort of honours these two women. But, you know, there's just been this rumbling issue. These, the two women haven't spoken for a while. What's the issue between them? We don't know. We don't need to know. But these, there's been an issue between them. Everyone sort of knows it. Everyone sort of dances around that issue because they're such wonderful Christian women and their families are terrific. And you can imagine this Sunday morning, they're very excited. We're going to gather for church, great. And uh, we've got a letter from Paul. Paul, ah, Paul led me to faith. Paul's my favorite Christian in the world and he sent a letter to the church. Brilliant. And and they listen to Philippians 1. Oh, yeah, no one puts things like Paul does. Chapter 2, oh, that's the most beautiful description of Jesus. Chapter 3, yeah, we need to remember those things. Chapter 4, Judea and Syntyche. What? And he names them in his letter. What a bit of... It's like tensing in the pew. But it's like tensing in the, in, the, in the building, I'd have thought, at that moment in time. Ouch. Can you imagine? Everyone, well, half the room turns and looks at them. Half the room desperately tries to, doesn't, you know, is trying to be polite. It's quite a moment, isn't it? And he says to them, I don't know what the issue is. I plead with you two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean agree on everything. 
There's never a command to do that. To become a Christian is not to become monochrome. He's not saying, Yudi and Syntyche, I need you to ring one another in mourning before church and wear the same clothes and do your hair in the same way and be of the same mind. It's not sort of monochrome. It's have the same mind in the Lord. That is, have the same mind as Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 5. Yudi and Syntyche, I'm not saying you're going to agree on everything. But can you be like him? Can you put others before yourself? Can you dwell upon heaven more than being a citizen here on earth? Can you put the gospel first and the spread of people knowing about him before your own comfort? You didn't syndicate. If you put Jesus first, then others, then yourself, all your problems will go away, whatever they may be. Can you please do that? I don't know, there's some realism there, I think. In the, the, dude, I just find this very encouraging. This is the best church, pretty much, in the New Testament. And yet still, they've got issues, interpersonal issues. I find that encouraging. But there's realism here in chapter 4, verse 3 as well. Look, um, Eudia and Syntyche sort it out. And you, my true companion, who's the true companion? We don't know. You can speculate if you like. We just don't know. But look... You need to get involved in them as well. I think there's great realism there. Sometimes two Christians disagree and they can't sort it out. And someone else needs to help bring them together. There needs to be some mediation. There's just realism there. Get someone else involved. If you're in a dispute with someone, you're not speaking to someone, they don't want to sort it out, get someone else involved. Now, look, how does this apply to, to you and to me and, and to us as a, a church family? Well, I thought about this. I'm a little nervous. But here, Paul was willing to publicly name individuals who were in dispute and needed to be reconciled. And so I think we need to do that this morning. Because it matters. So we need to name publicly two people who are in dispute and need to sort it out. No, not really. uh, That'd be awkward, wouldn't it? (laughs) I'm feeling nervous, and I knew I was going to say not really, and I'm still feeling nervous and tense about it. That's a relief, isn't it? God, that would have been awkward. Uh, We've done that publicly. No, I'm not aware of any big disputes within the church family that need to be addressed. There's no one I need. I feel the need to go and say, look, you need to go and speak to them and sort out your issues. Um, Relax, relax. Um, but, But that's actually... It does matter, doesn't it? Paul was willing to do that. He was willing to publicly name these two prominent women, awkward for them, awkward for everyone else, because he thinks unity matters that much. I'm not aware of any issues, big rumbling disputes between people in church, but if you know you're just not talking to someone, can you just see that it really matters? And sort it out. Get someone else involved if you need to. But be united in the mindset of Jesus. Look to heaven. Be concerned with others. Be united in one mind. Phew. Okay, the second. Uh, even easier. Uh, chapters, uh, verses 4 and 5. Always 
Rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, depending upon your mood when you walk into the building this morning, that, that could be a pretty irritating thing to read. And there's probably someone who could say it to you in a sing-song voice that really would be irritating. You know, how's your week been? Oh, it's been pretty bad. Oh, well, rejoice. That could be quite annoying. And, and, but you do see there is something also very profoundly wonderful about the fact that this is, it's a command. And the Lord never commands something impossible. So when he says, rejoice in the Lord always, the encouragements are, the Lord God has made you and me for joy. That is what we've been made for. Well, that's good news. And he commands us because we can do it. Well, that's good news. Yeah, there are times when it's like being a wet fish around the face when you're not in the mood to be hearing it. But it is true. And of course, the problem is naturally we, we think that we can only be joyful when we feel good. So uh, we think, oh, where, in our heads, when, when are the times when I'm most joyful? Well, probably I'm on holiday and I've got no worries about money and uh, the family are all getting on very well or the people I'm with, the, the gang, we're all getting on very well uh, and the sun is shining and we're doing things we like and there's no pressures. And, and those are the times where we think I'm instinctively most joyful. Well, the problem is if we tie our joy to circumstances, it will go up and down. We said that throughout the letter of Philippians. Paul is saying something more profound here, that we can rejoice no matter how we feel. And the key, the key is in, in the Lord. If it was just rejoice, always, I think that would be crushing. But it is to rejoice in the Lord. Because in him... There is the possibility of joy, even in the midst of sadnesses and sorrows. Because in him, no matter how profound the moment of sorrow is, there is always hope. And fundamentally, the opposite of joy is not, I don't think, sadness. It is hopelessness. And while there's hope, there is always the capacity for joy. You walk out of your house uh, on, a, on a whatever it is a Sunday morning, and uh, you see somehow in the night uh, your car has been completely smashed up. Someone's just driven over it in a tank. Bizarrely, you didn't hear in the night, but uh, your car, whatever it is, someone's defaced your car, ruined your car, trashed your car. That's annoying. You're going to be late for church, and you hate that more than anything in the world, don't you? Um, uh, you're going to be late. It's going to be inconvenient that week. You know, that's annoying. But if in your current account you have a liquid one million pounds, it's annoying, it's irritating, but yeah, it's all right. Tomorrow morning you go to the showroom and buy something new off the production line. It's okay. Fancy a new car anyway. And if you've got that sort of hope, the sorrow, well, it's annoying but you can still sort of smile in the face of it. Makes all the difference in the world. And so if we, if we focus upon circumstances, 
that can be overwhelming. But if we dwell upon hope, if we dwell upon Christ, upon Jesus, who he is, how we stand in him, where he'll take us, that even in the midst of adversity, there is a good God who, who cares for us deeply. Well, that's your million pounds in the bank. He says, well, this is annoying, infuriating, painful, and yet, well, there's hope to come. We'll get through this. I've always loved Martin Luther, the, the, the reformer, his observation, the sea of God's riches should swallow up any of our afflictions. Or, or to put it another way, if you had a bucket of water uh, and you carry a bucket of water through your house and you sort of stumble and you, you spill it on the kitchen floor, well, that's a mess. And it's a mess you've got to clear up and it's annoying. If you've got a bucket of water and you drop it in the sea... It's just gone. It's absorbed. You don't see it. That's what Luther's saying. We carry around our afflictions, our frustrations, uh, the things that make us grumpy. Uh, and, well, actually, if you, if you chuck them into the goodness of what you have in the Lord, well, it, sort of just, it dissipates a bit. You don't see it so much. If you carry it on your own without him, ignore him, forget him, and you spill it, well, it, it is. It's a mess. You've got to clear up. So again, what are, you, what are you going to think about, says Paul? I'm not rejoicing at the moment. Well, what are you thinking on? As he'll go on to say, verse 8, look, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, what is admirable, if any, think about those things. Think about those things, and you can rejoice. Kind of the most basic of levels, there's our own personal circumstances, but actually, the, the, the culture we live in could quite easily make us grumpy. I, I don't know about you, I, I watch the news most nights. Do you really don't end the news feeling more optimistic than before? Do you? I mean, what's the news going to be? You know, there's presidential candidates arguing, there's a Tory party arguing, and a Labour party arguing, and it's miserable in Aleppo, and it's depressing in Mosul. And, and the, the news doesn't naturally make you go... Brilliant. Look at everything in the world that makes me want to rejoice. He just doesn't do that. So Paul says, you, you do need to think. You need to sort of decide, I, I am going to rejoice in what is good in the Lord, that is still true, even though I'm carrying around this bucket of adversity with me. Always rejoice. You, you can do that, he says. You can do that if you're rejoicing in the Lord. Because as we heard in the kid's slot, he doesn't change. Be united in one mind, always rejoice. Third, here's the third way of standing firm. Never be anxious. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Never be anxious. Yeah, very good, very good. You know, all right, one was bad, two was annoying, three is just a bit too much. I mean, it's quite a, quite a big thing, is it? Never be anxious. I mean, you've got to be realistic. There are times in life where you do you flare up, but then it's what you do with it. This morning, uh, we went to bed last night, utterly convinced that last night the clocks went back. 
So reset the clocks last night, and uh, you know this morning got up, and you know normally it's sort of seven o'clock ish gives me a good couple of good times to sort of review, edit, think through the sermon again, uh, and then uh, what is happening in the cricket? Well, they've got the time wrong. Uh, what is it? Kerry! Uh, uh, <laughs> Whoa! We're going to go now! And, uh, you know, you have those moments that sort of frizzle of excitement, of anxiety rising up when you realise things are not quite as you uh, thought they were. Yeah, you have those moments, but what are you going to do? But they're not the ones that trouble us. It's the more profound things which are in the endemic in our lives. Let me just try and carve it this way. Three little questions. First, why are we anxious? Well, Paul would say, because your mind is set on the wrong things. You haven't got the mindset of Christ looking to heaven, but you've got your mind set on earthly things. That manifests in a number of ways, doesn't it? For a culture such as ours, a broadly London-based, able crowd, we expect to control things. We're very good in the 21st century at controlling things. We control lots of things. And therefore, the things that freak us out are the ones we can't control. They're the ones that really... We can't control everything. You expect to. Because we're so competent as humans in the 21st century. But there are still things we can't control and they freak us out. That's why, for many of us, children freak us out. Because you can't control them. Have you tried? They freak us out. But we can't control at the moment so much the economic climate. There's lots of uncertainty. Freaks us out a little bit. But because we control so many things, the things we can't make us so anxious. If you're told you'll die age 50, how do you feel about that? So it depends who you are, I guess. In the UK, the average age is 79, so that's disappointing. If you grow up in Zambia, the average age is 37, so you're pretty happy. If you die age 50, 200 years ago, the average age in the UK was 37 again. You'd be pretty happy if you died age 50. But now, of course, medicine is so much better and life expectancy is so much longer. So we expect so much more, but you can't control everything. And much anxiety is irrational because we want to control things we can't. And at that point, it's just a lack of trust in the Lord. It's why we're so anxious. So why are we anxious? We're just obsessed with here and now and not the heavenly. What should we do? Oh, there's lots of things here, but let me just highlight two that the text would stress. What should we do? The first is at verse 5. You need to remember that the Lord is near. This truth, uh, you've got the, the imperative, rejoice in the Lord always. Another imperative, don't be anxious about anything. And these words, the Lord is near, they just float in the middle. There's no, very unusual, there's no connection to, in Greek. To, it's not connected to one or the other. It just floats in the middle. I think the point is that this is a truth that's meant to affect both imperatives. It's much easier to rejoice when you know the Lord is near. Much easier to not be anxious. So in my head, it works a bit like this. It's a bit like you've got these, uh, a street with three terraced houses and uh, house number one, they're 
they're gloomy and grumpy and the, and the couple are arguing and haranguing one another. House number three, they're freaking out and they're stressed and they're anxious and they're worried. I don't know why they've got high pitch, but anyway. Uh, but then house number two, terrace house number two, all of a sudden they start playing to the most beautiful music. And house number one, they calm down and think, oh, that's wonderful. That's, doesn't that just put a song in your heart? And, and house number three, they say, wow, let's stop worrying about our troubles and just listen to the music. It's so great. And the music is that the Lord is near. It's a truth that changes us. He's near, I think, possibly in two senses. In time, he will return to right all wrongs. But probably the emphasis, he's near spatially. He is close to you. And that is a truth which, which does change things. Uh, last week on holiday, I just walking by a little park at one point and uh, paused, observed, I don't know how old the kid was, four or something, uh, at the bottom of a climbing frame and um, sort of went up a little bit and then freaked out and didn't want to go any further and Mum and dad were there. Dad said, no, go on, you can keep climbing. Go on, you can keep climbing. You can keep climbing, you can go higher. Uh, And then eventually his dad came, climbed up the wooden beam behind him and said, right, I'm right behind you. You can go higher. Okay. So he does. What's the difference? Dad is near. Dad will help him. Dad will catch him. That is the truth that that the Christian needs to know deeply. The Lord is near. He's a father who isn't distant, but is near to catch, to hold, to help. He's near. You've got to know that. Many of us will have very real concerns in the near future, but knowing that the Lord is not distant, but is near, is a truth that is priceless. Well, in other words, again, don't think about the bucket of troubles, the bucket of worries, but think about the sea of God's riches. It does change things in our fears. You might fear that someone you love is going to die. Now, that is a very real and horrible anxiety. But the hope that you'll see them again, that does change things. You can fear losing your job. That is debilitating. But the knowledge that the Lord has a good plan for you, even if you do, can keep you walking. So again, what are you going to think about? Think about that the Lord is near. Verse 8, think about what is good. So you need to know that the Lord is near. The other thing we've got to do is pray. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, pray. In fact, there's three words for prayer. By prayer, and pen, uh, prayer, petition, requests. Three different words for praying. Why? I think Paul is just saying, look, spread everything before the Lord. Everything before him. Two minutes of prayer in the shower where you say, oh, I'm so stressed about everything, Lord. I'm so stressed about everything. Please let me not be stressed about everything. That don't cut it, he's saying. You you just spread everything before him. Get out a piece of paper and write everything that is freaking you out and stressing you out and making you anxious. 
yeah, all right, do every, write every what if. This is, I'm fair, I'm, what if, what if, you know, my, my, my leg falls off and my eyeballs pop out of my head? What if, all the, the weird ones, write them all down if you want. But present everything and then say, Lord, it's all yours. You know, 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord. Psalm 55, cast all your burdens upon the Lord. Everything. And give thanks. Give thanks. Remember that the Lord has provided so much which is good. He's been good in the past. You can trust him for the future. Give thanks. So what should we do? You've got to know the Lord is near. You've got to pray. Pray properly. Uh, Superficial prayer doesn't really do it. You've got to pour it out. Write it out. And then what do you expect? What should we expect? Third little thing, third little question. We should expect verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's very lovely. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a technique. What should we expect? We do these things and then peace descends. How does that work? Do you know what? It's beyond understanding. God is not bound by this world. He does do the extraordinary things. And he can give you peace in the midst of the most woeful adversity. He can do that. It's beyond understanding how sometimes people can keep going in the midst of everything they're facing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's real. It is real. Uh, He'll guard your hearts and minds. It's a military term. This is sentries. The Lord will place sentries upon your heart so you don't get worked up in such a same way. He can place a sentry upon your mind so you don't just dwell upon these things endlessly. He can do that. That's very wonderful. Tangentially, this is not, of course, to ignore medical help. Sometimes we need that. We're holistic beings. It is not to ignore common sense. Sometimes we're overburdened. We need to get others in to help us. God uses all sorts of means to bring peace to us. But at the end of the day, you've got to ask, there's an issue of trust. Do we trust that the Lord can provide this peace? This is God's desire, his plan for you and me. Now look, none of us are perfect. Look, I... I'd stand before you an utter hypocrite. If I gave that impression, there have certainly been periods of my life of acute stress, acute anxiety, of sleeplessness that's gone on for weeks. And in the end, I've only broken out of it by going to the doctors, taking some heavy-duty sleeping tablets, and going on holiday and sort of breaking out of the cycle. Just being honest with you. But when I reflect on those times, leading into them before I really got into the pit, was I, was I praying yeah, sort of in a, in, a, in a verse six sort of way, prayer, petition, requests, thanksgiving. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Now, the Lord is patient, but I'm not sure I ever quite availed myself of these sort of promises in the worst of times. <laughs> this is true. One bloke's comment was, I've yet to meet a chronic warrior I've yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. That's probably true, isn't it? 
If you pray profoundly, you're unlikely to be someone who worries enormously. I think that's a fair comment. So I don't know about you, but look, here's my new plan for worry. Uh, I go through this sort of process. I'm stressed. What do I do? One, I write a list. That just works for me. Uh, what am I worried about? Oh, actually, there's not that many things on the list. Well, there are lots of things on the list. Well, it doesn't matter. Write a list. Two, ask, what's the worst that can happen? Do to ask that. Sometimes it's just not as bad as you think it is. What's the worst that could happen if you stand up and you haven't got a sermon? It'll be all right. Three, remember the promise, the Lord is near, and dwell upon it. Four, pray deeply. Pour out everything. Five, think about what is good, verses eight and nine. Six, do whatever you can to get through the scenario. You've got to do the work. You've got to go to, you know, you gotta, you know, you do what you can. You be practical. Look, we can't control the world. Bad things happen. Being a Christian doesn't insulate us from that. But the Lord is near. He'll take care of us. The sea of God's riches should swallow up our particular afflictions. So what do we think about? Think that the Lord is near. Think about what is good. Think about what we have in Jesus Christ, who he is. You turn back to chapter 2 and you read of Christ again, of who he is and what he's done for us. And think, well, I'm not always joyful and I am quite often anxious. Yeah, but dwell upon Christ. He always got it right and he does help. How, it's just, sometimes it's just beyond understanding. But you think of him and think in the moments of his most acute adversity and stress. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that the Lord is near. His Father is near. And so he pours out his heart to him in a staggering prayer to you and me. And over on the cross, he knows that his Father is near and he pours out his heart. Why have you forsaken me? And yet he still clings to the hope in front of him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Think about him. It's not a technique, Paul would say. The Lord's work is beyond understanding in us. And yet, what are you thinking about? I'm really grumpy at the moment. What are you thinking about? I can't bear this. I'm always full of anxiety. What are you thinking about? Think like this. Have the mindset of Christ. Look to heaven. Look to others. Think about these things. Let's pray together. Our Father, personally, I'm conscious that here is a, here is a passage in a sermon uh, where I ask uh, your forgiveness, the forgiveness of others here, if I've been clumsy in applying these truths. Father, only you know the, the depths of our worries, anxieties, the things which are causing us to be joyless. And so, Father, for each of us here, 
Would you help us to hear rightly the command, the call to rejoice in you despite our circumstances because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. To not be anxious despite the things that frighten us because you're near and we can trust you because you're good. Father, would we dwell upon who you are and what you've given us? Would we dwell upon these things and have the mind of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.